My name is Paola Gaeta and I'm Professor of International Law at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. This lecture will examine the distinguishing features of two adult classes of international crimes, namely crimes against humanity and genocide. Let's start with crimes against humanity. First of all, let me tell you that crimes against humanity can be generally defined as massive or systematic infringement of fundamental human rights. Their first international definition dates back 1944, with the establishment of the International Military Tribunal sitting in Nuremberg with the London Charter. This category of crimes uh, allowed the punishment of criminal acts uh, which were committed by the Nazi defendants against own civilian population or against the population of allied countries, since these criminal acts uh, could not be considered as war crimes, uh, not having been committed against the enemy civilian population. Crimes against humanity, therefore, and Nuremberg were conceived uh, a sort of an umbrella notion covering the lacuna left by the notion of war crimes. At the same time, one shall consider that the definition of crimes against humanity enshrined in the Charter of the Nuremberg Tribunal had an important limitation. Crimes against humanity could be punished only to the extent that they were committed in connection with other crimes under the jurisdiction of the Nuremberg Tribunal, namely war crimes and crimes against peace. And namely, this means that there had to be a connection with the war. After the London Charter and the Tokyo Tribunal, which also had jurisdiction over crimes against humanity, the notion of crimes against humanity has remained dormant, as to say, for a long time. And the process of its international criminalization has never been a subject of an international treaty defining in crimes against humanity, similar to the convention that exists punishing the crime of genocide. At the moment, a draft treaty on crimes against humanity is being discussed at the United Nations on the basis of a draft prepared by the International Law Commission, and we have to wait and see whether or not such a convention on crimes against humanity will come to light. However, the notion of crimes against humanity also appeared with the establishment of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in 1993 and also in the Statute of the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda in 1994. The definition of crimes against humanity in these two statutes has important differences and do not correspond entirely to the definition contained in the Nuremberg Tribunal Charter and in the Tokyo Tribunal Charter. Finally, the definition of crimes against humanity has been inserted in the Rome Statute establishing the International Criminal Court in Article 7 after intense negotiations in particular when it comes to the so-called contextual element of crimes against humanity, namely the context that shall exist for a serious violation of human rights to amount to a crime against humanity. Since the definition of crimes against humanity in Article 7 of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court is 
been negotiated by a larger number of delegations of states and is in a treaty which has received many ratification, is an indispensable point of reference for any discussion of crimes against humanity. So let's examine a bit the constituent elements of crimes against humanity as enshrined in the Rome Statute, Article 7. First of all, we shall notice that crimes against humanity consists of a series of prohibited acts that we usually call the underlining offenses that are crimes against humanity if they are part of a systematic or widespread attack against a civilian population. This is the contextual element of crimes against humanity. These underlining offences that would be crimes against humanity if they are part of this contextual element can be of two types. And usually we refer to them as murder type offences and persecution type offences. This distinction underlines that crimes against humanity are often made of murder-type offences, namely acts that are criminal already under the municipal law of a given country. Murder, torture, rape, and so, forth, so on and so forth. These ordinary offences would, however, become crimes against humanity if they are part of this context, forming crimes against humanity. On the other hand, persecution-type offences may consist of acts that not necessarily are criminal in the domestic legislation of the country. Persecution may be any violation of fundamental human rights that is carried out on discriminatory grounds and therefore non necessarily per se is a criminal act under criminal law. In the Rome Statute, however, persecution could be a crime against humanity, a punishable crime against humanity, only if it is committed in relation to any murder-type offence listed in Article 7 of the Rome Statute. Let me spend a few words on these murder-type offences that can amount to crimes against humanity. And we can notice that the list in Article 7 of the Rome Statute is a much longer than the list of underlining offences originally included in the definition of crimes against humanity in the Nuremberg and Tokyo Tribunal's Charter. In these two latter, the list comprised murder, extermination, enslavement, deportation and other inhuman acts committed against any civilian population. By contrast, in the Statute of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, the list of underlining offences simply again repeated the preceding acts included in the Nuremberg and Tokyo Tribunal's Charter. The Rome Statute, however, has added to the list of crimes, crimes such as imprisonment, torture, rape, which were also included in Contra Council Law No. 10 enacted by the four occupying powers in Germany, and also forcible transfers of population forced pregnancy, severe deprivation of physical liberty in violation of fundamental rules of international law, sexual slavery and forced prostitution, forced pregnancy and other forms of sexual violence of comparable gravity, and forced disappearances of persons and apartheid. 
Also, the list comprises any other inhuman acts that is of a character similar to the offenses listed above and causing great suffering or serious injury to body or mental physical health. Let's look at persecution. Persecution as a crime against humanity, as I said, uh, is a kind of crime that may consist also of acts that not necessarily are criminal in the context of municipal criminal law. In Article 7.2, letter G of the Rome Statute, persecution is defined as the deprivation of fundamental rights contrary to international law that is carried out on discriminatory ground. And these discriminatory grounds are very broad and they include political, racial, religious grounds, national, ethnic, cultural and gender grounds, as well as other grounds that are universally recognized as impermissible under international law. Let's now move to the contextual element of crimes against humanity contained in the Rome Statute. This is another success of the diplomatic conference that has led to the adoption of the Rome Statute because since that time, crimes against humanity in the definition contained in previous international criminal courts and tribunal statutes required that crimes against humanity had to be committed during an armed conflict or in relation or in close connection to a war. This requirement has been abolished in the relevant provision of the Rome Statute because therefore nowadays crimes against humanity can be punishable and be committed even absent an armed conflict during time of peace. What is requested, however, as I said, that a contextual element exists, and this contextual element is that the underlying offence are part of a systematic or widespread attack against a civilian population. What is an attack is further defined in the Rome Statute as a series of acts that are carried out in pursuance of a state or other organizational policy of a state, and also, the case law of the International Criminal Court has clarified what is meant by systematic attack or what is meant by widespread attack. A systematic, in essence, means organized, while widespread means something that may be not necessarily repeating in a pattern or organized, but is in its magnitude that counts, its high magnitude of the attack that counts. However, the fact that the Rome Statute has recognized that crimes against humanity do not need an armed conflict to be committed does not mean that crimes against humanity cannot be committed during an armed conflict. And indeed, crimes against humanity may be a frequent occurrence in war. And therefore, the question arises on the relationship between war crimes, that are crimes that they can only be committed during an armed conflict and must have a close link with the armed conflict, and crimes against humanity that do not need an armed conflict to be committed, but may be committed during an armed conflict. And the fact of the relationship between two classes of crimes can be simplified by, first of all, clarifying that a same criminal act such as murder of a civilian, may be at the same time a crime against humanity and a war crime. It would be a crime against humanity if the killing of such a civilian during the armed conflict is indeed part 
of a widespread or systematic attack against a civilian population. So this would qualify the murder as a crime against humanity, if this contextual element can be proven and is existent. At the same time, the very same act of murder could also constitute, at the same time, a war crime if it is committed against a protected person, namely a person that is protected by the rules of international humanitarian law, outside a military operation, and has a nexus with the armed conflict. So for the same criminal act, the person can face two charges, the charges of murder as a war crime and murder as a crime against humanity. The two would coexist on the basis of the doctrine of concours ideal d'infraction, cumulative convictions, since both class of crimes protect different values and they consist of different legal elements. Another issue, however, may be more difficult, namely, what if a particular action during an armed conflict is not contrary to international humanitarian law and therefore is not a war crime? Could the same action amount to a crime against humanity? So, if there is a military attack that is carried out during a military operation in conformity with the rules of international humanitarian law because the military attack has been carried out against a military objective and has caused damage to the civilians and civilian objects that is proportionate to the rule that respect the proportionality requirement of international humanitarian law, could we consider the killing of the civilians that is not unlawful under international humanitarian law as a crime against humanity? Well, the question is very debated and you have two schools of thoughts. There are those who would consider that the rules of international humanitarian law would prevail in such a case because they would contend that if the military attack and the damage to civilians, the killing of civilians, is in compliance with the rules of international humanitarian law, then it is not possible to bring any charge based on crimes against humanity. They would consider that humanitarian law would prevail over human rights law in these circumstances. According to another view, however, this is not the necessary outcome. The other view proclaims that the non-necessary international humanitarian law would prevail over the values protected by international humanitarian law, law protected by international human rights law through the law of crimes against humanity. And they would say that if it is proven that the collateral damage inflicted to civilians, such as the killing of civilians during a military attack, although proportionate under the laws of war principles, it is part of a systematic or widespread attack against the civilian population, then a charge of crimes against humanity may be brought against the responsible persons only under crimes against humanity. And therefore, they will keep the distinction uh, uh, apparent and applicable. Let's now move to the crime of genocide. Genocide, uh, let me start by saying that genocide is a contested term in political discourse and is a notion that shows uh, some discrepancy between the social perception and the legal meaning. 
This is clear if one looks at the so-called contested genocide that have been ignored. The legal meaning of genocide, however, contains some ambiguities and also some lacuna, since it seems not to permit the inclusion of notions such as ethnic cleansing, cultural genocide or democide. The legal concept of genocide, as is well known, was propounded by a Polish jurist, Rafael Lemkin, to describe the destruction of essential foundations of life of Jews in Eastern Europe. And invented this new term by combining two words, gino, Greek word to describe social war groups with common descent, and sedere, which is a Latin word to kill. So genocide means to kill a group. At the Nuremberg Tribunal, however, genocide was not included uh, in the criminal proceedings because uh, the charter of the military tribunal for Nuremberg did not contain the crime of genocide as a basis for the jurisdiction of the tribunal. The term genocide was not even used by the tribunal in its judgment. However, Lemkin managed to persuade the prosecutor to include the term genocide, at least in the indictment. It is therefore clear that at the Nuremberg Tribunal, what we call now the Holocaust, namely the extermination of the, of the Jews, uh, the genocide of the Jews, was prosecuted and punished not under the charge of genocide, but under the charge of crimes against humanity. The first definition of genocide was, however, adopted in an international treaty, which was concluded also thanks to the efforts of Raphael Lemkin in the Genocide Convention of 1948. This treaty contains the first international legal definition of genocide, which has remained, let's say, untouched in subsequent legal instruments adopted at the international level uh, in having a definition of genocide. In particular, this definition has been maintained uh, unaltered in the statutes of the Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and the Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, as well as in the statute of the International Criminal Court. This convention contains, therefore, this definition of genocide in Article 2, and describes genocide by making reference to the following elements. First of all, it is necessary that a series of acts are committed, these underlined acts of genocide, and these series of acts are enumerated in the definition of genocide of the Genocide Convention in, in a closed way, in an exclusive way. And there are five genocidal acts. These genocidal acts are the killing of members of a group, causing seriously bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, and finally, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and finally, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. All these five genocidal acts, in order to constitute genocide, shall be carried out by the individual with a particular mental element, which is the so-called 
genosi dall'intent. Indeed, the preambular part of the definition of genocide in the Genocide Conventions require that the underlying act are committed with intent to destroy a national, religious, ethnical, or racial group in whole or in part, as such. So this is the special intent of genocide, which describes that these underlying acts should be carried out with an intent that is not necessarily to be realized for the crime to be committed, but is the ultimate goal of the perpetrator, namely, through the underlying acts, what it is intended to be achieved is destroy one of the four protected groups, racial, national, national and ethnical groups, as such. The destruction, the destruction of the group shall not be attained to speak of genocide, but should be in the mind of the perpetrator. This is the distinguishing trait of genocide as a crime under international law, which also distinguishes it from crimes against humanity, which, on the contrary, as we have said, do not require a particular intent for the perpetrator, but require that a context exists where serious violations of human rights are committed. Much has been written about how to define the protected groups. How can we identify that a group is a national group, is a racial group, is an ethnical group, or is a religious group? Well, the case law has clarified the elements to characterize all these groups, but one has also to consider that these groups may overlap, so a racial group, which on the contrary should not exist because there is only one race, the human race, uh, a racial group is, makes no sense in, in, in biological terms, but you can have an ethical, ethnic group that is at the same time a religious group, or a national group that is at the same time a religious group, and so on and so forth. So one should be not obsessed with identifying in a specific and clear manner the features of each of these groups. So what is important that genocide shall be directed against any of such group, although uh, you can tick more than one box in, in finding whether or not a group is protected. More importantly, the question has arisen on who decides that a group exists? Should a group exist objectively, or the group, the existence of a group is based on subjective perceptions? And this matter has arisen in particular before the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, which had jurisdiction over the crime of genocide committed in the territory of Rwanda. And as is well known, uh, the, the, the genocide was carried out in furtherance of the policy of the government in power at the time, which was a Hutu, expression of the Hutu ethnicity, against the Tutsi, another group uh, living in, in Rwanda. And the fact is that, objectively, the Hutu and the Tutsi were the same group, because the distinction between the Hutu and the Tutsi was a social creation. In particular, it was created after the Belgian rule uh, through the colonization and embodied in the constitution of Rwanda, distinguishing the two groups as different groups. But uh, in, 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 in anthropological terms, uh, the Tutsu were not different as the Tutu, but they were perceived as different by the relevant population and by the members of the group itself. 
therefore, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda has developed the important case law whereby in order to identify whether or not a group is protected by the definition of genocide, one shall not necessarily rely upon objective criteria because the social perception of the existence of a protected group also matters. Another problem relates to the how to prove the existence of genocidal intent. How it is possible to prove that the murdering of a member of a protected group, the killing of a member of a religious group, for instance, is a genocide? How can one prove that through this act of killing, the perpetrator was in fact aiming at destroying the group in whole or in part? And this is a big debate about that. And again, we have two schools of thoughts. According to one school of thought, uh, the necessary is that acts of genocide shall be carried out in the context of a genocidal policy. And only if there is a genocidal policy, proving the genocidal intent of an individual perpetrator would be possible since intent is always inferred from the circumstances of the case, the existence of a genocidal policy would easily help the finding that a particular individual has adhered to this genocidal policy and therefore this individual harbored the genocidal intent in carrying out the specific criminal act of murdering a member of the group. This is one school of thought. Another school of thought considers, on the contrary, that genocide may be committed even absent a genocidal policy as a context, since this context is not required by the legal definition of genocide. But if the policy exists, this would facilitate the proof of genocidal intent, but this is not a legal requirement. Therefore, according to this school of thought, it is possible that a single individual acting alone may commit genocides if it is possible to prove that through his own action he constituted a threat to the existence of a group. This threat, for instance, may come because this individual has a weapon of mass destruction that he's starting using against members of a protected group and therefore causing a threat to the existence of the group. The jurisprudence of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the jurisprudence of the Tribunal for Rwanda, have adhered to the second school of thought. In the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, things are a bit more complicated since in the elements of crimes, supplementing the definition of genocide for the purpose of the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, it is requested that the act giving rise to, to a possible charge of genocide form a part of a systematic pattern of conduct. It is important now to underline that the definition of genocide contained in the Genocide Convention has been changed at the national level in some municipal law. Some national legislation have indeed expanded the definition of genocide to include, for instance, acts um, that are carried out against members of groups other than the groups protected by the international definition contained in the Genocide Convention and have included, for instance, political or social groups. 
Others have also expanded the list of underlining acts, including, for instance, rape expressly as a possible act that may lead to a charge of genocide. And this is something that is important to take into account because it's also through national criminal legislation that the definition of genocide can expand through customary international law. An area of controversy relates to the possibility of including ethnic cleansing in the uh, definition of genocide. Um, as we said in the legal definition of genocide, there are only five underlining acts that can give rise to a charge of genocide, and these five underlying acts do not comprise the so-called ethnic cleansing. Ethnic cleansing is a practice whereby Persons living in a particular area are targeted, killed, their houses are burned, and acts of violence are carried out against these people for the purpose not of destroying them as a group, but for the purpose of, of them to leave that geographical area. So therefore, it is usually contended that ethnic cleansing can never constitute per se an act of genocide, unless you prove that through the violence inflicted in the, uh, to the population, the ultimate goal was to destroy the group as such, as, a, an, an, as an entity. However, this interpretation can be contested and has been contested because it is possible also to consider that a group may be destroyed not only physically or biological through acts of murdering or killings and inflicting pain and suffering, but also can be destroyed as a social unity living in a particular geographical area. Therefore, if one interprets the notion of genocidal intent, namely the intention to destroy a group as such, as destroy embodied only also the destroying of a group as a social unity living in a particular territory, then the notion of genocide could also include ethnic cleansing.